Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. Turn to uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to continue in our series through this book. This book of wisdom as we know it in Scripture, with, uh, which often includes a good bit of poetry, a good bit of uh, illusion, uh, which, meant, which is meant to engage the mind, the imagination, to understand what God's all about, what's how His world operates. And especially in this particular book, uh, it's telling us, helping us, the, the writer, Solomon, King Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, to, uh, telling us what his wisdom, he's gone to the end of the road, and he's telling us what the end of the road is, back at the beginning of the road so that we can have a, have a, it may not change the direction of the road, but it changes, it changes how, we, how we live on the road, how we, in, how we enjoy or don't the road. Um, I, was, uh, <clears throat> I was watching this week uh, a, um, that makes me think just, in, just now in terms of, it doesn't change the, the, the road, but it changes the condition of, of how we engage the road, the attitude. It doesn't change, but it changes how we, how, the, the, the place of our spirit and our emotions. It, it reminds me that uh, Becky and I were watching this um, movie called um, 14 Peaks, 14, or just 14, 14 Peaks. It's a, it's, a, it's, huh? Yeah, but I didn't know if that's the title, 14 Peaks, I, and I, I'm asking her doing this because I haven't, I, I didn't think about it until now, just now. It's a movie about uh, a mountain climber who, uh, who climbed uh, the 14 highest mountains in the world. And they're all over 8,000 meters. So that's what for the 14 mountains in the world that are over 18, 18 or not 18, 8,000 meters, which puts them over 25,000 feet, so forth. Um, he climbed them all in six months. And he gets to the most dangerous mountain, the deadliest mountain that exists, based on everybody dies, a lot of people die when they go to this mountain, K2. It was, one of his, it was number 10 on his list. And he gets to K2, and everybody, when he gets there, is just depressed. Because they've been there for weeks. Nobody can climb. And, and they, get, they have these sort of mountain-climbing councils and he comes into town he's ready to he's ready to climb he's climbed 10 of them already in 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 like a month and he's ready to climb number 10 and he's and he's coming in he's got a really kind of enthusiastic spirit and he's ready to as it were take and he takes the, the camp by storm he says let's climb it let's go and the and the council sits around and goes well the, the conditions aren't right the mountains in right and just because you come in with a positive attitude doesn't change the mountain he says well i'm not going to change the mountain but i'm go-. but he changed the atmosphere of the camp and after he climbed it 24 more people climbed it. Changes, doesn't change the mountain, doesn't change the direction, but when you have a proper perspective on the mountain, it changes everything. This is what Ecclesiastes, this is what the writer says. Follow along. Chapter 1, verse, or chapter 3, verse 1. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, 
a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, and a time to gather them, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain, a time to search, and a time to give up, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to mend, a time to be silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time, to, a time for war, a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on man. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and be satisfied in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it or nothing taken from it. God does it so that men may revere him. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd be with us this morning. Give us your grace. Help us to know what it is you would have us discover about yourself, about ourselves, about this world where you've placed us and about where you're taking us. Father, I pray that you would give us uh, open hearts, minds, wills to embrace what you have for us today in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There, is a, uh, there was a series uh, not too long ago called, uh, and I'm not, I don't think they're doing them anymore, called uh, Mythbusters. Um. I used to love to watch that. And what they would do is they would take certain commonly held cultural myths, sayings, cliches, and they would put them to the test to see, you know, if they, if they work scientifically, if we get them to work. You know, just sort of uh, myths, ideas. And one of them that they were, one of them, I remember, I remember an episode where they were trying to discover if remedies for being drunk were, were, were helpful. Do they have any validity? You know, and of course, they went, went on to say the best remedy for being drunk is, of course, don't get drunk. But they were, trying to get the, they were trying to say, once you are sort of inebriated, do any of these methods work? Okay, so they put to the te- they put the, and it's funny, if, you, if you've ever seen the show, the two hosts are kind of comical. <laughs> and of course, then they, they, they drink and they get inebriated. So they, 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 the breathalyzer they used was to, to make sure they were inebriated beyond a certain level. And they managed, they, they determined what the, that level was, and they, so they, they blew the number in the breathalyzer, and then they would test the remedy. So they, one guy, uh, one guy got, got inebriated, and he, and he uh, drank coffee, lots of coffee. And so at the end of drinking all the coffee and let it in the system, blew, blew the breathalyzer, didn't do a thing. Then they tried, uh, uh, one, one of the other guys was inebriated, and he, and he puts his head in ice water, just puts his whole head in ice water. He's sort of splashing your face with the cold water. Didn't do a thing. Another guy, uh, when, when, when they was inebriated, he got on, the, got on the treadmill and did a lot of exercise, just exerting his body, trying to get the blood flowing, as it were. Didn't change a thing. You know, the only thing they tested of all the myths about how to get over inebriation uh, or, to, or, to, or to lower the numbers. The only one that had any effect, all, none, of the, none of the myths had any effect. The only one that had an effect was when the one guy was inebriated, um, the other guy slapped him in the face. 
And then, of course, they, they, they put that to video use. And so you see him come around in slow motion and slap the guy in the face and his whole kind of face warbles. As, and, then, and then he blew into the tap and it lowered the number. I found that funny. And the reason I think of it now is because the writer of Ecclesiastes is sort of doing that. He's slapping us in the face to get us out of our of our bewildered, confusing inebriation of how we view life. We look at life through a poor lens. We come at life through, through, through a hazy lens, and, and the writer of Ecclesiastes is slapping us in the face and says, wake up! Or, you know, I remember a movie years ago where, where uh, I forget what the name of the movie was, but Cher is in it. It's an Italian family. And the guy, the guy comes to her who's in love with her, and he says, I'm in love with you. And she slaps him in the face and says, snap out of it. Right of Ecclesiastes is doing that too. Snap out of it. Put on a clear lens. And the lens that he's trying to help us understand in this capacity, much, you know, uh, and my apologies to the birds, um, as, the, as you may have been listening to their song as I'm reading this passage from years ago, to everything, there is a season, turn, turn, turn. Their answer, they think the wisdom of this is live long enough and it, it, it might be a bad day, but a good day's coming. And life circles, turns. That's not what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. He's not saying the wisdom that he's giving us here is not that your life, you'll have a better life if you understand that everything turns. No. He's saying that everything is moving in a direction, that, that life is not a circle, it's a straight line. And he does that. The, the critical place that I want to focus our attention is in, is in verses in, in verse. Uh, 11 and 12, or verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. I want to see it from the, that what God is after, what the writer of Ecclesiastes wants us to see is that, is that we will understand life better when we understand the beauty of it, the timing of it, and the control within it. Beauty, timing, control. The writer of Ecclesiastes is telling us he is making things work. There is, although it might seem like we're spinning between ups and downs, ins and outs, positives and negatives, fortunately and unfortunately, that it might seem as though we're spinning and turning. It is, that is an inaccurate understanding of how life is. He puts out a bunch of things. He describes in all of this poetic language, he's describing the ebb and flow of a whole life. If you live any length of time, you're going to experience all of these things. And even as you're, as you're reading them, you know, and I might encourage you, uh, maybe even to meditate on those for first couple of verses over this week is to is when you read them as I have over these over this last week in preparation I, you look at this and you go there's a time there's a time to search and then there's a time to give up you've been in that situation lived lived and you're searching and, you're, and you know and the, you, know, you live with people, live with, live in, uh, with personalities and w- with temperaments that are, we're never giving up. We just can't give up. 
Sometimes you just gotta give up. I was talking with talking with some folks this week uh, about some of these ideas um, that the Bible tells us that that in relationships we should always seek to mend conflict. We should, and that the hope is that by the power of the gospel we we can always we always want to come back and try to find a way to, to love and restore and to trust in every relationship. And sometimes the Bible says, confront a contentious woman once and then have nothing to do with her. What? Wait a minute, God, didn't you say we should mend relationships, that we should never let things go, that we, should never, we shouldn't give up on the possibility of things being restored? Yeah, and then he says, live at peace with all men inasmuch as it's within your power. Which brings up the possibility that sometimes you can't. You've got to give it up. The Bible is describing, this poem is describing the ebbs and flows, the ins and outs of life that we, that we go through. And it might seem as though we're moving in a circle, just spiraling around the various things. And we are at the, we are at the mercy of those experiences. But, in, but then verse 11 says, the hope of verse 11 says, it's not a circle. We are not at the mercy of a, of a tornado spinning us in this world. He, there's someone who controls the whirlwind. There's someone who's involved. There is a direction to the turning. There is a movement. He is making things out of this. He is operating. He controls. There's, there's someone in control of these things. He's authoring it. He, the same hand that brings the love brings the hate. The same one that that, that, that men's is the one that tears down. The same one that, here's one that, that I'm sure my wife would love for me to get used to. It's a time to speak and there's a time to shut up. Yeah, I t- I t- I t- we, we, all use, we all use our strength to solve problems, to solve conflict. I've, I've, I have an adeptness with words. I... I speak for a living. And so whenever there's a problem, you know what, I, you know what my go-to is? I'm gunslinging. I'm going, yeah, let me talk about it. <laughs> I know how to solve that. Let's talk for an hour. And what Becky teaches me is that sometimes that's not the solution. Sometimes the solution is, shh, just sit here. But what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying is that God is bringing things into our lives for a purpose, for a reason. He's guiding us in a direction. He is controlling it. And so it is right for us. It is right. It is absolutely good and right for us when we see life to to praise Him, to praise Him for the joy. And it is absolutely right and good to praise him for the sorrow. Praise him for the sorrow. Because he is moving us, he he is using, he knows accurately how best to get us to the place he's guiding us. He's telling us he, 
He is controlling it. He is making. He is doing. And therefore, because he is controlling the whirlwind, because he is the one mastering of all the universe, because he is guiding it, making it, leading it, even Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. How did I get in the valley of shadow of death? How in the world did I get here? You look around and you go, how am I in this valley? How am, I, how am I possibly, how is it possible that I could be in the presence of my enemies? What the heck? Why would I, why would I go into a valley of death? Why would I go into the presence of my enemies? I don't want that. Well, how did it start? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Oh, I love that. He leads me beside still waters. Oh, that's wonderful. I love still waters. I love walking by the water. He restores my soul. That's wonderful. Guides me in all my paths. He, his rod and his staff, they comfort me. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Oh, wait a minute. How do I get in the shadow of death? Because the shepherd got me there. The shepherd. The one who's controlling the sorrow and the joy. The one who's controlling the turning in this, in this poem. He's guiding us. He's, and what does the psalmist say? The same thing that the Ecclesiastes, the, the writer wants us to, to see is that because he controls it, because he is guiding it, because he is the shepherd, we don't have to fear. We don't have to live in dread. We can, we can know that we are safe. Why, why would I ever be in the presence of my enemies? That's not a safe place. How can you tell me that's safe? How can you, how, Drew, Jesus, the, the psalmist says, David, that's where God, the shepherd says, let's eat. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. In the presence of my enemies, I'm running. In the presence of my enemies, I'm full of dread. In the presence of my enemies, I'm anxious and fearful. In the presence of my enemies, I want, I, I, I want to, you know, I want to fight or I want to flee. Jesus says, let's eat. It's okay. It says, where the safest place, the safest place for you and me. Jesus taught this to the disciples when the storm came on the sea. And they're running around the deck. Skilled, skilled seamen running around on the deck. What the heck? This is too much for us. And you know what Jesus is doing? You remember the story. You don't even have to go to church to remember this story. What's Jesus doing? He's in the bottom of the boat, sleeping. And what do the disciples say when they, get, when they find Jesus in the bottom of the boat, sleeping, when there is a raging storm that makes fishermen nervous? They see him, and their first words are, don't you care about us? And then he gets up, and he says, Where's your faith? Where's your faith? He calms the storm. 
what he was teaching the disciples is the same thing the Ecclesiastes author is teaching you and me. Because God is in control of the storm, because life is not just turning and we are at the mercy of it, he is guiding it, he is making us, he is making us and he's using it for our benefit. It is safe to be in all of these situations. The safest place for you and me is not out of the storm. The safest place for you and me is in the storm with Jesus. Or better said, the safest place for you and me is with Jesus, wherever he goes. That's the safest place. So if he goes in the storm, where do I want to be? Well, I'm not sure I want to be in the storm. (laughs) But Drew said, and the Bible said, and Ecclesiastes says, and the psalmist says, the safest place is where he is. So, okay, if he's in the storm, I'll jump on in. But I sure hope he walks down the green pastures every now and again and the still waters. That sounds nice. Yeah. It's time for it all. It's time for it all, but he's guiding it. The safest place is right near him. He also tells us in this, in terms of that timing, he gets into the timing of it all. He says he has made Everything beautiful in its time. In its time. In other words, he's crafting eternity. He's crafting things that that everything has an appointed purpose, an appointed process. We We are not even at the mercy of time. God is orchestrating our direction. He is managing it as he would manage any aspect of life, even time, which seems out of our control. And time is out of our control. Keeps moving, but not for him. He's outside of time. And the other thing that the, other thing that, that the author is telling us is not only do we better have an, a better understanding of life if we understand that God is in control of it and he is managing our lives and making it his and making it beautiful, which we'll talk about. He's making it beautiful That's helping us to not be afraid that we can trust him and be safe wherever he guides us. But he's also saying, keep in mind, don't get your hearts focused on time. Because God has placed in us something that isn't timely. He has set within us eternity. Because you're made in the image of God, he has placed eternity within us. What does that mean? In other words, uh, let, me, let, me, uh, let me quote C.S. Lewis, who says it better than I do. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably... Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other hand, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are, the only, they are only a kind of a copy or an echo or a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, 
which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying he's elaborating on the idea, not specifically, but He's elaborating on the concept that, the, that, that, that Solomon is saying, God has placed eternity within us. And so if we think our desires, our, 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 our pleasures, our, our infatuations are meant to be fulfilled here, if, if, if a certain experience at either end, joy and sorrow, all the lists that he has, the scattering and the gathering, the embracing and the refraining, the, the living and the dying, the healing and the killing... It, at either end of that spectrum, if we think those things are supposed to sort of satisfy us, if, 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 we're, if we're supposed to live in this in a, in a kind of completely satisfactory fashion, we are we're not seeing life accurately. Life in every aspect, as C.S. Lewis says, was meant to evoke, to arouse, to titillate us to something that is not in this world. Our desperate longings cannot be fulfilled here. That's true for no, that's, that's true for everyone, whether you believe in Jesus or not. And all of us are trying to find our desperate longings to be fulfilled in something. We're trying to, we're trying to fill the, as C.S. Lewis also put in that similar article, the God-shaped void. The God-shaped void that's in our hearts, that's in our lives, we're trying to fill it up. And when it doesn't fill up, we, we scream at ourselves. We yell at the people around us. We, we hold our hand up to God. We call the earth a fraud. And God says, it's not a fraud. In the, in the brokenness of your condition, the brokenness of my condition, it's, it, it, it was meant to evoke within us that there's something missing, that there's something in this world that cannot be satisfied, and the only way to satisfy it is to have a sense of eternity, a sense of me, a sense of seeing your life at, with, with a lens towards the end, towards the captivation of what is yet to come. Does that, mean I, does that mean that I should, you know, when we look at the mess that our world is in, there's usually two responses. And the, and the writer of Ecclesiastes has led us down this road. There's usually a couple of responses. When we see the mess of the world, the world is a mess. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's one option. The other option, the world is a mess. So what does it matter? That's the other option. When the writer, when Solomon says, and Christ says, no, the world is a mess. And the way, to, the way to navigate it is that we don't live for this world. Live for the next one. And so I can surrender this world one moment, but I can be grateful for it the next I can invest deeply in my relationships and in the world. I can plan. You know, one theologian once said, "What if you knew Jesus was coming tomorrow and the kingdom of God would be restored he says what we, he was asked what would you do he says i'd plant a tree and the questioner said why would you plant a tree he says because i know i know what that tree is going to look like when it sprouts he says i want to look i want to see what a redeemed tree looks like i want to see what an eternal tree looks like wow 
That's the world we're looking for. That's why, and so he's investing in this world because this world will be renewed. This world will be resurrected. Your heart, your life will be reshaped and molded and healed, yes, in the eternal moment. So we can invest in this, but we don't, but we don't over-invest in this. But in the world to come. He's guiding us. He set that image. He set that eternity into us, telling us that he's guiding us forward in a straight line, not through, not through a cyclical experience, but utilizing every aspect to guide us. Where? Where is he taking us? Thankfully, the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us exactly where he's taking us. He's taking us to eternity. So live with the end in mind. Live towards that goal, towards the redeemed trees, toward the redeemed marriages, toward the redeemed, toward the, the holistic life and, and beauty that is out there. But he's taking us to eternity. He's also taking us, where is he leading us? He's making, he, verse 11, he has made everything, everything beautiful. He's making everything beautiful. Where are we headed? Where's God taking us? To become beautiful. How's that sit with you? You good with that? You know the definition, uh, one, one, one working definition, one, one, one cliche, one, one substantiated definition for art. Do you know what? definition of art is, you know, that for, through the ages, through the, through the millennia, what is art? What, what constitutes art? One definition. Art is something that is more beautiful than useful. And Jesus says, the writer says, God's not making you useful. He's making you beautiful. God's not making you efficient. He's not leading you and me to efficiency. Sorry to say for all my type A friends like me. He's not making us right. He's not making us productive. He's making us beautiful. He treasures us. He's making us beautiful. He's mending all of the ugliness that's in our lives. And all of the ugliness that's in us are all, uh, there are a lot of those things. There's a lot of stuff that makes us ugly. But when, and so when he talks about how he's making us beautiful, it's a bigger category than just simply any one of those individual things, those accuracies, those rightnesses, those, those efficiencies. He's not just interested in those things, but it's the whole picture. It's the shalom. It's the, the grand peace that he wants to bring to every human heart and to every part of his world. He's a sculptor making it beautiful. He's the... He's the bridegroom who's, who's perfecting his bride, his beautiful, from any stain or blemish or wrinkle, Ephesians says. That's how Paul talks about the beauty. The bridegroom who is Jesus is making for himself this beautiful creature, this 
wonderful, beautiful bride that he can have for all eternity. And he did that. The way that he, the way that he does that, and the, and the writer of, of Ecclesiastes doesn't go into great detail. He only alludes, he only hints, he only, he only arouses our attention. But the way that he did that is by the bridegroom coming. Eternity stepped into time. Not only did God place eternity within the human heart, eternity stepped into the world to make it beautiful by taking into himself the ugliness. Despised, rejected, who's, uh, upon whom whose countenance no one would care to look, it says in Isaiah. He took the ugliness into himself to make us beautiful. He took timeliness into himself that we could be visited with eternity. When we see the world through this lens, when we see the world through the lens of eternity, through God's control, through the, that he's making us beautiful, it allows us to enjoy the whirlwind, to give him praise, to be grateful in the whirlwind. To know that he's not just... People come to me in their grief. People come to me in their suffering. People come to me in their anxieties and fears. People come to me with their disappointments and hardships in life. Some do. And, and, and they wonder, the, the common question is, what is God trying to teach me? And the, the goal of that question is to say, I want to learn it so that I can get out of it. Right? You've been there. I've been there. What is God, what is God trying to teach me? And here's the thing. <laughs> He's not mostly trying to teach you something. He's trying to make you beautiful. That's the purpose of suffering. That's the purpose of sorrow. To make you beautiful. To shape you into the beautiful... What does Paul talk about in... in uh, in his epistles, he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. You know what the, you know what the, you know what the, uh, the actual translation from the Greek, the word workmanship is? The word workmanship in the Greek actually means masterpiece. It's an artistic term. You are his masterpiece. You are, his, you are his opus dei. Magnum opus, I mean. You are his body of work. You are his beautiful sculpture. You are the thing that he, is, that he was, would allow himself to be shred down to nothing so that you and I could be built up in beauty. When we see life through that lens, it changes not the road, but it changes everything. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you are making all things beautiful and that you've placed within us eternity. Father, I pray that you might help us to live this way, but also to help others to live this way through this lens as gut-wrenching and as 
and as startling as it might be. Do that for your namesake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.